0: from our study in the book of Daniel. We finished the first half of it uh, in the series called Resolved. And the Sunday after Easter, we'll pick up with chapter 7 and go to the end of the book in a prophecy section of the book of Daniel called that we will call our sermon series Fulfilled as we seek to understand the ancient prophecies and what we can glean from them in our everyday spiritual life today. But I'm excited about this two-week break because, of course, we enter into one of the most celebrative and exciting times of the Christian calendar today is what we refer to as Palm Sunday. It's that day where Christ journeyed into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds were initially excited about him. Hosanna, as we sang today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Later in the week, As many of you well remember, things began to turn. The crowd began to listen to the religious leaders that were intent on his death. And as the trial ensued and as the Lord's sovereignty would have it, we experienced a a time of grief, but something that turned into a time of celebration, and that is the death of our lord and savior jesus christ and as we consider his death this week and his resurrection next week i'm excited to uh, break down a truth from the book of second corinthians chapter 5 uh, in verse 21 and as we look at that powerful passage the illustration that you just saw a moment ago will maybe have some clarity as we look at the end of that verse specifically, but we're talking today about cross points and savoring the glory of the cross. You see, Paul's been writing in 2 Corinthians 5 to let God's people know, let the church at Corinth know that they have been reconciled with God, that they have, that word reconciled means to be made friends again with. Maybe you've had tension with somebody, and you work things out, and one or both of you apologizes, and you're now reconciled. That's what happens with us and God, because God is holy, we are unholy, and when we come to that place in our spiritual life where we realize that He died for our sin, and we trust Him for salvation, we are reconciled with God. So Paul tried to stress to the believers that they have been reconciled by faith in Christ, And that God has given them this ministry of reconciliation. That they get the privilege of being God's ambassadors. Taking his good news and saying, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Well, in verse 21, he does in such a succinct way explain the how of reconciliation. What God accomplished and what it means for us. And I'm going to read this powerful verse this morning as we consider cross points. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we look into this great verse, the first principle, number one on your outline of a cross point that help us, helps us savor the glory of the cross is first of all that the cross is God's design. Notice as the verse begins, God made him. One of the things it teaches us about God is that God is deliberate. At some point, we look at the cross of Christ, and if we're not careful, we could look at it only as tragic. Because it is quite a sad story. It's a story of great injustice as far as it appears to the human eye. How could the one who was only trying to help be charged with all this guilt that certainly was not his? Well, the answer that Paul gives to this stunning question is simply, God was behind it all. God made him. You see, with us, sometimes we're planners and sometimes we're not. Have you ever had more success when you didn't plan something than when you did? Sometimes uh, when I've been deliberate about something, it, it didn't seem to go over as well if I just sort of planned it on the uh, whim. But God is not like that. He is always purposeful and deliberate. Matter of fact, we read the chilling words in Isaiah 53:10 as he prophesies the suffering Messiah, and it says, It was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And as we read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter said to the crowd, It was by God's set purpose and foreknowledge that he was handed over to you, speaking of Jesus. In other words, God designed it from the foundation of the world down to the very moment, as heartbreaking as it may seem, and as mind-boggling as it is, as we look at the glory of the cross today, we know that God was behind it, and that God has ordained it for his glory and our good. Then it says, God made him... And a great statement Paul made that's in harmony with the rest of Scripture, after that it says this, who had no sin. That's the second cross point this morning that helps us savor the glory of the cross. Number two on your outline, that the cross offered a perfect sacrifice. You remember in the Old Testament that if you were to offer a sin offering before the Lord, you had to offer a lamb or an animal without any blemish. You couldn't get the one that was sort of your leftover, the one that you couldn't sell at the market and offer it. You had to offer a blameless and pure, perfect sacrifice, foreshadowing that the only way that God would would accept a offering for the covering of our sin would be from one that was a perfect sacrifice. Of course you could see there were not many candidates for that position. Matter of fact, we only know, and we know in our hearts, that there is but one person qualified to be that perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. Why? Because God made him who had no sin. The sinlessness of Christ has sometimes been of a great theological debate. Some like to ask the question, well, okay, so he was sinless, but could Jesus have sinned. He was God. He was man. He was God in flesh. Of course, I believe the answer to could Jesus have sinned is an overwhelming no because of the uniqueness of his nature. He was God in flesh. But I, I, I believe that at the same time, while, God's, while Christ's deity was sort of a backstop against any possibility towards sin, we read that he was tempted in every way in Hebrews 4.15, just as we are, yet without sin. I believe that Christ felt the full weight of temptation in his humanity, but unlike us, who when we feel tempted, we often give in, cave in, and give up, and we feel defeat rather than the victory of saying no to sin so often. Christ felt the weight of temptation, yet was without sin now some might want a little more proof so to speak a little more certainty that christ was indeed sinless yes the bible says so here yes the bible says so in other places but why do we believe that christ was sinless john stott in his book basic christianity reminds us of three reasons of the sinlessness of christ first of all christ is sinless because he claimed to be so you're going well what does that prove occasionally you'll find a real nut that says i am a i am i have never sinned before well the thing is when christ asked the question in john 8 46 to the crowd he said can any of you convict me guilty of sin and then he said in john chapter 8 verse 29 i always do what pleases him it was either a humongous lie a a grand delusion or a statement of fact and no one could say anything to his statement of, can any of you convict me guilty of sin? I don't think anyone in this group has the courage to stand up and say, hey, has anyone, anyone want to point out anything I've ever done wrong, ever even one time? Well, the truth is, Christ asked that question because it was a statement of fact. But another reason we believe in the sinlessness of Christ is because his friends or those who knew him best also testified to his sinlessness. That would be one place that you don't want to ask the question, hey, anyone ever seen me doing anything wrong among your closest friends, in your family, in front of those who've seen you at your weakest point? But Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, said of the Lord that he spent three years with day and night, serving, ministering, sleeping, eating, he said he committed no sin, no deceit, was found in his mouth, and maybe the person on earth that was closest to Christ during his earthly ministry, the apostle John said in 1 John chapter 1, 5, in him was light and no darkness at all. His friends confessed his sinlessness. Something even more astounding, however, is his enemies also confessed his sinlessness. It was people like Judas who betrayed him for 30 silver coins, after he'd realized what he had done, went to the high priest, gave back the money, and said, I I am guilty of an innocent man's blood. His enemy Judas knew that he was innocent. And as Pilate, the Roman governor who was overseeing his trial, all all he could look out and say was that I find no charge against him. Even the Romans. The Roman soldier, as he stood by, the cross of Christ and saw him take his last breath he looked breath he looked up and said surely he was a righteous man even those who were involved in his trial in order to find something against him had to make up fabrications in order to find anything to accuse him of even his enemies proclaimed and believed his sinlessness and so we say with great truth today that god made him who had no sin but look at the next statement in verse 21 it says who had no sin, to be sin for us. Now, what a paradox. The one who had no sin, the Scripture says, became sin. That's a third cross point this morning, and it's simply this truth, that the cross satisfied the Father. Have you ever been out to dinner with someone, and you didn't have your wallet or your money with you, and so your friend paid for you, and he's the kind of friend that, wanted to be paid back and so next time you saw him you realized that he bought your dinner and so you give him a ten dollar bill hey I, I owe you this thanks so much for dinner the other night and he looks at you funny and you're like what and he says it's actually ten dollars and sixty three cents so you get in your you find a little change and you put it there and go man hard to please that person well in some way without the cattiness our heavenly father demanded full payment for sin. The reason is, is because of his bright blazing holiness and man's sinfulness, there was no way to bridge the gap without a full satisfaction, a full payment. If you wanted to pay off your bills, you couldn't pay most of it off and please those you owed money to in an official capacity. It had to be all paid. And For, for our sin to be fully paid for, someone had to pay. It was either going to be us or someone qualified to stand in our place. And because of God's great love for us and desire for us to worship Him, God did something mind-boggling, and He allowed Himself to be satisfied by making His perfect Son guilty of our sin. Now, what does it mean for Christ to become sin? It just said he had no sin. How could he become sin if he had no sin? He is not complicit in sinning in that he became a sinner. He was not personally involved in lust, pride, anger, racism, greed, or hatred. He did not commit those sins, but he became sin only in the sense that he was charged with the guilt of it. He was held responsible and therefore became so closely identified with our sin that there was no other way to describe it in that he became sin. Now how should this make us feel as the recipients of his mind-boggling grace? In some ways, if we were to hear a story like this, we'd feel a great sense of injustice. It's not fair for that to happen. You remember when you were a kid and somebody behind you was talking in class and the teacher looked up and thought it was you? And they went smiling off to recess and you stayed back and went to detention or back in the day wrote something on a chalkboard a hundred times. And you said, that's not fair you remember how you felt when you saw on camera or on television that guy, that girl that everybody knew was guilty, but there was some kind of technicality, there was some type of lack of evidence, some type of mistrial, some kind of soft jury, and now the newfound celebrity smiles off, whisked away in a car, followed by paparazzi, and you feel, that's not fair, that's unjust. Well, if we look at what Christ did for us, the one who knew no sin to become sin, there should be something in us that says that is not fair. But living God, he's done that for me. He's done that for his name's sake, and I stand in awe of the one who had no sin, who became sin. And who did he become sin for? We find those two words in the middle there. He became sin for us. That leads us to a fourth cross point this morning and that the cross provides a substitute who did he become sin for it was for us one thing to note about those two words for us is that the blessings of reconciliation the blessings of the cross are not simply for all humanity in general they are for all who are in Christ they were they're for those who become part of us so to speak the body of Christ and how do you become one of the us how do you become a child of God it is by faith in Christ and so there was a very specific reason that Christ died so that we could be his child and it, and it was for us that he came that infers that in order to receive that you must become his child by faith now the specific point of for us, as number four on your outline, that the cross provides a substitute. Sometimes the word substitute doesn't bring very good memories in our minds. Maybe you had a really nice teacher, but every time he or she was out, they found the meanest substitute in the world. Teacher, did that ever happen to you? But what also was, seemed to be weird is that when you had a mean teacher, you got a nice substitute. I don't know how they arranged that. Sometimes the word substitute on a menu is not a very welcome word because you ordered chicken, and it came with potato salad, and you ask, hey, I'd like to have mashed potatoes instead of that. And the waitress looks at you and says, no substitutions, please. And you said, how do you know what I like to eat? That's interesting. You're not allowed to substitute. A substitute is something that stood in the place for something else and sometimes it's positive but when it comes to the concept of Jesus being our substitute it should cause us to tremble because the truth is we should have been there we should have been the one that paid for our sins with our life but Christ became sin for us that we could come to know God that we could be free of this guilt of the the shame and the horror and the awful penalty of sin, which is death, which is separation from God, which is eternal punishment in hell. Yet for us, He, the perfect substitute. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. He was the perfect one to stand in our place. And then the last part of verse 21 says, So that in him leads us to another beautiful cross point number 5 this morning that the cross enables a relationship with Christ you may have heard that term again and again in the new testament the idea of being in Christ we know second corinthians 5:17 if anyone be in Christ he's a new creation the old's come and the old is gone and the new has come. It is in Christ. We're told in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, that when you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. That's a very, very close relationship. Have you ever had the kind of relationship that you felt was smothering because someone was always near you or maybe overkill in your mind? Well, that kind of relationship, that incredibly close relationship The atmosphere was to be pervasive. That's the kind of relationship that we get when we come to know Christ. He's always with us. He always wants us to look to him. And we are therefore in him. Not just becoming part of a group. Not just signing our name to a document. Not just a member of a club. We are are in him. We have a relationship with Christ. And it says so that in him we might become the the sixth cross point that helps us savor the glory of christ is number six on your outline and that's this that the cross gives us a new identity that word become is a word that means to change to enter into a new change or development we have become something in christ something that we were not before that we could never be on our own that we might become become We've undergone something that has transformed our life, and it is really akin to you and your bank account. Imagine your bank account, regardless of how much is in there, let's say that it begins to whittle down to a nub, and there is hardly anything in there at all. And all of a sudden, you now get your mind off money for a moment because you're going, oh, this would be an incredible thing to happen to me in my real financial life. Think spiritually now for a moment, but there's nothing in your account, and then all of a sudden, it is completely filled in a never-ending way. Uh, What that would do to your sense, what what that would do to change the way you viewed life would be incredible. The, The things that you could now do that you could not before. Well, spiritually, that is exactly what happens, is that our own spiritual bank account is down to zero. But in him, we have become something there's no way we could ever become on our own. What is that that we've become? At the end of verse 21, it says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God requires for us is to be made right with Him. And so we try and try and try to be nice enough, sweet enough, good enough, and our righteousness is only filthy rags before the living Lord. We can't earn enough, do enough to appease His blazing holiness. But in in Him, we have become something, the righteousness of God. That's the seventh principle this morning of the cross point, is that the cross credits us God's righteousness we're told in Philippians chapter 3 that we are found in him not having a righteousness of our own that comes the law but the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith this describes what the Bible refers to as justification and sometimes the word justification which is a word that simply means to be made right is interpreted to say that it means just as if I'd never sinned and while in one sense That's a decent description. It doesn't go far enough. Imagine that you worked in the yard yesterday. You got hot, sweaty, and your clothes were dirty, and you were filthy, and then you went and showered and put on new clothes. You wouldn't say, wow, I feel like I have never been dirty before. You would say, no, I was filthy, and now I am fresh and I am clean. And and sometimes we like to sidestep over the depths of our sins and say, it's just as if I never sinned. No, it's that we were completely and totally unrighteous and in every way, but Christ became sin for us. And so now in him, we've become someone, we've become something, the, the literal, actual righteousness of God. And in light of that, we live out righteousness. We choose righteousness because in Him we are righteous. This powerful image and picture that's painted for us in the Word of God is one that we must savor, that we must ask God for grace to understand its depths. Yet this morning, if you find yourself never coming to the place in your life where you've personally trusted Christ for salvation, it is, the, the message comes to you today. simply for you to say, I want to trust in Christ for salvation. As we enter into a time of prayer and response, what will your response be to him today? Living Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We ask that you would engineer circumstances to draw people to your truth this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.